Paul and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam. This is episode 115, but it's the sixth in our um, Beyond a Joke series. Um, yeah, um, it's very exciting. Um, in this episode, I talk to um, Brana Van Nangalingham um, about um, Kira Muratova's film, The Asthenic Syndrome. Um, yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah it was an amazing conversation. Um, one of the best things about um, the last ten years of my life has been um, writing kind of in tandem with um, Brennan. Um, we don't collaborate or anything like that, but um, we um, often have books out at the same time. Um, he I think is far more um, productive than me, but um, we're often sort of in places at the same time. And some of my best nights of the year, um, years, over the years, have been with Bran and um, yeah, I've, I've loved his work from the beginning and um, this new book that he has just published is just incredible. Um, it's a book called Slow Down You're Here, um, it's a book that um, is quite audacious in its um, sort of shifts in tone and um, and the things that it's doing um, with horror and romance and um sort of talking about relationships and yeah it's 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 a wonderful book it's a wonderful book it's it's not an easy read I keep um sort of saying that to people I'm a bit scared that I'll just be like oh it's lovely romance um it's quite a full-on book there you go um but yeah well worth it I think yes well worth it so um yeah I really enjoyed this conversation with Bran um the um a, a piece of cinema like this is not perhaps an automatic choice um for a podcast where we're talking about jokes and funniness but um I think that it is just the absolute perfect um perfect way into a conversation about Bran's writing so yeah very grateful for um to Branavan and for Branavan yes yay um there um you if you subscribe to this podcast you will have um got um a newsletter um where I talk a little bit um, sort of just in response to the podcast um, there are also some links there you can watch the whole of the Asthenic um, Syndrome um, on YouTube crazy the world we're living in I tell you um, and it also has subtitles quite good subtitles um, if you don't speak Russian um, yeah amazing film um, and yeah I'm really grateful for this conversation um, with Brandon. Um what else do I have to say? Oh, if you're listening to this, um, perhaps not on Substack. Um, um, if you would like to come over to Substack and um, subscribe to the newsletter, that would be incredible. Um, I'm really enjoying, um, I'm very grateful to the people um, who have um, subscribed. And um, yeah, it's, it's really nice sort of writing these to a group of people and producing these podcasts for a group of people. So yeah, please do come on over. Um, it doesn't cost anything to subscribe. Um, there is an option to um, offer some money um, and I'm incredibly grateful um, um, for that. Um, yeah, that helps um helps a great deal the money and I'm very grateful for that but there I made a decision that there's no difference between a paid subscription and a free um, subscription which perhaps makes the people who pay even more wonderful and um, they will find their return in um, the um, laws of the universe anyway I'm very grateful extremely grateful so yes please come and subscribe um, at our substack that's betteroffred.substack.com 
come along it's fun and um thank you as always for listening i really appreciate it thank you branovan oh this um episode was um recorded at toy puniki um toy puniki um let me rent this very cool room um up the top um and yeah i'm very grateful for that so yeah thank you so much and um yeah have a good day I'm good. <laughs> That's good. Sorry, that sounded like we were on the news or something. <laughs> the way I said that. Hello, how are you? Um, thanks heaps for coming. Um, no, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much, man. This oh, I I can't wait to talk to you about this. Arr. Um, this has been one of the greatest things that anyone's ever bought. I think. Um, but anyway, let's start. Let me not get ahead of myself. Would you like to introduce yourself? Kia ora, uh, I'm Brandon Vinyan Lingham, I'm a novelist and lawyer uh, based in Wellington and I have just released my seventh novel, Slow Down You Here, uh, which came out in April. Oh my gosh, such an amazing book. Oh, so, I'm so excited to talk to you. And um, you have bought, um, I asked you to bring something that has made you laugh and um, you have bought one of the most interesting, um, tonally one of the most interesting things I think I've ever seen. And yeah, do you want to just talk about the, the, what you bought for us to talk about? Um, I bought Kira Muratova's uh, 1989 film, uh, The Asthenic Syndrome. Um, so uh, Kira Muratova was a Soviet uh, filmmaker um, who was Russian-speaking and moved to the Ukraine after uh, Glasnost and died, I think, two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky enough when I was uh, in the Rotterdam Film Festival, they had a retrospective of her films uh, and I had access to all the films I wanted to see for free. So I spent one entire day watching six of her films. Um, Bliss. Because they just, in Europe, they just love just like showing films all hours of the day, but also just like not caring if you wanted to watch as many films as possible. So I watched six of her films. Um, I had heard, ab- heard about her and she was kind of one of these um, holy grail filmmakers because she's so really... Um, uh, shown uh, in kind of Western um, cinemas. Um, I think the Wellington Film Society would show a couple of her films, and the film festival had shown Melody for Street Organ, which I had missed um, when I was in um, when when it showed here, um, and I knew that it was on the program. So I was like, right, I'm just going to watch these films because everyone talks about her who cut into the film tastes of people, people that I love, and so I went for it. Um, and this film is seen as kind of her masterpiece. Mm. Um, it was filmed um, at the real tail end of um, communism and just as the Soviet Union was about to collapse. And I think it kind of got unfairly pigeonholed as a fall of the Soviet Union film when I think it's much broader and much more um, uh, resonant, I think, outside of that context as well. But I think people who saw it then loved it. It got... It got it got a good reception amongst film critics, but then it kind of died and it hasn't got any, hasn't been distributed. Uh, it is available free on YouTube, um, but there's been no kind of Criterion uh, DVD release or anything like that. Um, and it also meant that her subsequent films kind of largely didn't get seen and she made some incredible films in the 90s and 2000s. Mm. Um, and Melody for a Street Organ is probably up there with one of my favourite films of all time. Mm. Uh, and also had a huge impact on my writing. Um mm. And also even slow down your hair. I think there's a real um, uh, kind of 
uh, interplay, I think, between um, what she does and, and what I try to do. Um, but I thought I'd talk about the aesthetic syndrome because I think it has this real sense of tone and humour which I really wanted to um, talk about for this. But mm. I could just as easily have talked about Melody for a street organ or the tuner or the policeman. Um, she's just, yeah, she's just fantastic. I am so grateful. I, I have always heard her name and never watched a film. And um, I think to start off with, we were talking about maybe just talking about one scene and... Um, I was like, okay, and then before I knew it, two and a half hours were gone and I'd just seen the most incredible film ever. So thank you very much for that. Um, I, I, one, we did sort of start off thinking about this one scene, which, like, there's a very interesting structure to the film where it's actually, there, there's this um, black and white section which turns out to be a film within a film. And, um, and in that first section, there's a funeral. And um, you said that that would be a good scene to talk about as far as that tone and humour goes. And I wonder if you would just talk about why you thought that would be a good scene to talk about. Yeah, so the, um, it almost starts a little bit like a Yorick um, Hamlet kind of sense with uh, these gravediggers, I don't know what they were doing to the cat, but they were doing something to a cat which was pretty dubious and pretty <laughs> um, icky, but the cat gets away, which is yep. for anyone concerned about the cat. Um and then it cuts to a series of funerals and then finally cuts to um, uh, a specific funeral. Uh, and I remember when it first, when we were watching the movies, most people watched it pretty seriously, but there was like a handful of us, including myself, who just absolutely started <laughs> c- uh, cackling when they showed her dead husband, mm, who looked mm. exactly like Joseph Stalin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was such an unlikely, because it's such a grim um, doer start that you kind of go, Oh, okay. That's she. Everyone's mourning over Stalin. I guess that's kind of, uh, but in that very death of a Stalin, um, uh, Ionesco kind of, um, oh, Ionucci, sorry, um, approach of mm. um, uh, grim, but kind of like oh, that, that, that yeah, that, that weird kind of cut, uh, and then the scene progresses where all these people performatively show their grief. Uh, and the widow is kind of looking at this and then she sees two men just kind of talking not caring at all kind of as if they were there um, for a yarn for a gossip Um, and then she storms off and all the people who are performatively um, uh, grieving then don't know what to do as to whether they should keep grieving whether they should just chuck the body into the hole Um, and then she storms off and then but she gets lost in this maze of graves and you see all the the um, when people died, it's around the 80s, 90s, these kind of people who went through such horror with the um, the revolution, with the aftermath, the um, Stalin purges, World War II, obviously. Um, and you kind of think she's just kind of doesn't know where to go. And this kind of darkness completely takes over. So you kind of laugh, but it's also really grim. But you're also laughing. Um, and she does it in a way that shakes you from any sense of complacency mm. um and she uses humor in a way that promotes that doesn't undermine the anger that is kind of all the way throughout because the the whole movie is about indifference and how to react to horror and in the first section as you say there's that two parts that first section um she goes over the top in her anger and you kind of just as an audience you're like oh, just just chill just calm uh when in the second part, the the guy is so um, indifferent and so um, 
lazy and kind of happy to blame others uh, without for his own failings that um, she kind of contrasts these two reactions to horror um, in a way that kind of makes it really confronting and mm. um, and real. Mm. Um, and then the humour just runs through it as a way of, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe political films work better when there is humour because you can kind of hide that political message. Um, but also I think she's heavily influenced by situationism and this idea of the shock and the, um, the sudden tonal shift to make sure that you're never complacent while you're watching. So yes, the characters are complacent, but you can never be a complacent viewer. You can you have to be an active viewer mm. all the way throughout. Because mm. I think that was something interesting I thought when I was watching it, because there there's that hilarious line where the gravediggers are kind of like, do we shut Do we shut the lid now? Do we, yeah. you know, like what are we going to do? And I just wonder, uh, you, you know me, I'm always interested in what bodies are doing, but I was wondering about this, the way that laughing kind of opens us and then, because... And, that kind of storming off, there's something innately funny about an angry person not being able to complete their anger, you know, yeah. and that storming off and being lost and, you know, getting in these graves that are smaller and smaller. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And then it was like, oh, my Lord, you know, and there are all those stills of people and, oh, man. And I just wonder, I was thinking about your new book and I was thinking about that tonal shift that perhaps no small no spoilers or whatever you want to talk about but there are some real moments of that kind of tonal shift where there's sort of an almost relaxing happening in the reader well in my experience was I was sort of like oh this is interesting and then you know things shift and I wonder is that is that something yeah, I really, I think I'm really just interested in any thoughts you've got about how to pull off those tonal shifts, really. Yeah, well, I, um, I, my background is film, so I mm. studied film mm. um, at university, and I did my honours and MA in it as well. So I um, had always been interested in film, and that was kind of my entree into writing. I became a writer through becoming a film, being a film writer, um, and the films that really grabbed me were '60s Czechoslovak New Wave. Um, and the Soviet cinema. Mm-hmm. I have no mm-hmm. idea why, but there were those kind of communist films really had something to to them. I think because they, for me, they I just love the way they jumped around with tone. Um, and in some respects, there's a recklessness to it which I really love. And um, because to me, real life is never this single tone um, thing. It, it always jumps from funny to sad. And especially if things are really grim, then your response sometimes has to be to laugh um, because how else do you get through it? Mm. Um, and those films in particular really happily jump between tragedy, farce, humour, uh, horror, all often in the space of a scene. Mm, um, mm. Uh, and there's something about that sensibility which really kind of made me want to use that in my writing and I can understand some people find that difficult in my books because I don't maintain a tonal consistency because and I have no intention of maintaining that tonal consistency uh, and it can, can mean in some instances if I'm writing uh, something which is particularly serious like Spriggs um, or about serious subject matter that some people I have to be careful that people don't view the humour as being mm. um, undermining kind of overall what I'm trying to say but I just the way that the Eastern European cinemas and um, and Muratoma in particular used humour as a way of kind of solidifying that political point was something I always tried to 
tried to match. Yeah, because I love what you say about not being able to be complacent. Like there is a disquieting to it, you know, like um, there is a, um, it's that wonderful thing where it's like, I love these movies as well, but like, there are some movies that kind of um, tell you what to feel the whole way through you know like I think of them as manipulative but I don't mean that in in a derogatory sense but you know like they it's like now you will cry and now is the sad part and now is the happy bit and now we'll laugh and there was something about that film that it kept boomeranging back into me where I was thinking is it okay to laugh you know like and it, it was this wonderful kind of questioning yeah I think it was a very active watch yeah I mean I think she was I mean, in particular, that second part, she's ripping mm. into mm. kind of a complacent intelligentsia who, um, yeah, might complain about communism, but actually, you know, they're doing fine out of it. Um, <laughs> and she kind of lays this, I guess, almost shows how it's going to turn. Right? Once communism falls over, it's going to turn to chaos and anarchy, which it kind of did, mm-hmm. um, which it is at the moment, obviously. And um, she laid that groundwork by talking about indifference and, and but it's not just the communist world I mean I, I think about um, you know the, some of the key milestones when I was growing up and that was the, the Iraq war or um, the rise of the far right in, in France and England and Hungary and the US and India Brazil like all of this stuff happened through kind of that complacency and indifference mm, and, mm. Um, so she in that film uses techniques to make sure you can never be that yourself like she'll cut to that pound, that dog pound thing, which is horrendous. Um, or she'll cut to the male frontal nudity, um, yeah. which got the film banned in, in, in the Soviet Union because of that, that scene. Um, so yeah, she'll just, uh, in that kind of situationist kind of way of just making sure you never get to settle. I always wonder, I, as I was reading about that, I was wondering if maybe the um, censors were quite happy that the male nudity was there so they could because it was not saying popular things but it's yeah. very easy to just say oh you're not allowed that you know like yeah that. well it's always interesting because some of the really repressive regimes also made this incre- these incredible films because in some respects the filmmakers were um uh using symbolism as a way of kind of hiding some of what they were some of the messaging or using things like humor as a way of um sugarcoating some of what they're mm, saying mm. but also places like Russia and Iran for example have such reverence for culture that they were kind of like oh well this is a great film we'll just put it out and then we'll just ban it but it's still there so if you wanted to watch it <laughs> you can watch it um, and and so these great films kept getting made because they trusted the artists enough to a point and then uh, banned it once it was made because mm. it's one thing I'm sorry I don't think I prepped you for this question but I if, if you have any thoughts it would be amazing I did keep thinking as I was watching the film about how a film gets made you know like I I I don't know if it's state funded or whether it's self funded it would have been state funded oh wow yeah. so it would be like the Russian version of Creative New Zealand or something yeah but paying for the full thing and um I mean, I have no idea how the grant model would have worked and whether they would have had to submit a script or anything like that or whether they go off-piste once they've made the... Once they've got the funding, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, you think of filmmakers like Parajanov and Tarkovsky and and people like that who made these kind of films that were really controversial in the Soviet Union, they still made them. Yeah. And Tarkovsky still kept getting funding yeah. until the very end when he shifted over to Sweden. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I must... Like, I just kept... Yeah, I don't know. I just keep thinking what an amazing, 
you know, like I, I sort of get ideas about um, certain regimes and, you know, their, their relationship to art, but I just could not get over how magnificent this film was. Like every shot was just so beautiful. And just to see, um, like, yeah, like I, as I was watching, it was funny. Someone walked past and sort of said to me, "I oh, was that a documentary?" And I was like, "I'm I'm unsure if any of these funerals are real. I yeah. doubt it, but you know, who knows?" But yeah, I mean, she was using in that opening in that sequence and in that funeral scene, she was using um, the socialist realist technique of montage. Um, oh yeah. So she was using kind of the um, approved form of editing, <laughs> but using it to subvert um, <laughs> the Soviet kind of way of uh, of life. So she would have been having a fun joke with um, the censors in that respect. So she was doing what they would have asked her to do, but uh, in a way which is undermining what they were actually fighting for. I think this is why, yeah, I think this is why I like Soviet-era science fiction as well. It's just so wonderful. Um, I I was kind of interested, um, This you, you talked a little bit about horror, and this film definitely does show things when you know I, I definitely felt at times when I was feeling complacent there was a cut to something that was quite um full-on and um I'm just wondering it was interesting because when I talked to um Johnny Potts we were talking about um how humor and horror are similar in that way that they build suspense and then offer some relief mm-hmm. and I just wonder yeah, I, I, I do, I, I sort of, I'm going a little bit off track here, but I'm just wondering about some of the decisions that were made around Slow Down Your Hair um, as far as, well, first of all, I wonder if you've got any thoughts about that thing of mm-hmm. sort of not looking away and the way that it's kind of related to laughter or humour. Yeah, I mean, I think, so one of the things I was, had always stuck with me, which when I was, um, which my film lecturer had said is, he talked about action cinema uh, as an unusual form of cinema because you get so caught up in the narrative, but an action sequence is its own set piece mm. and it stops the narrative, funnily enough. like um, I mean, obviously the best um, filmmakers like Spielberg or um, John Woo can kind of incorporate that action sequence into the wider narrative, but mm. at its heart, an action sequence stops the narrative. You experience the spectacle of that um of that action sequence, and then you carry on with the narrative. And and to me, humour works in the same way. Humour stops the narrative because it's all about that joke at that particular moment. Mm. Um, sometimes, and this was the big debate within uh, um, in cinema as to whether Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin was better, because um, Charlie Chaplin really does the set-piece humour. Mm. Mm. Like his, his scenes stop the narrative. You watch um, this um, incredible piece of... Um, uh, choreography, and then you get back to the narrative. Whereas Buster Keaton would put though his kind of amazing stunts as part of the narrative when he's climbing on the train or when he's diving, th- when he's building the falling on top of him, or all that sort of stuff. Um, so I was really interested when I was writing Slow Down. You hear t- the way humor can play with pace. Mm, so one of the mm. things I'm always working really hard on in my books is pace, um, and I know that a joke can stop the narrative or slow the narrative for the reader. But then it also kind of sets them up for something horrible to happen in the next scene or because mm. uh, you kind of forget everything where you're at because you are about the joke and then you jump to the next scene. Um, I use that particularly, there was a sequence in A Briefcase, Two Pies in a Penthouse where I really tried to play with that when um, 
they're doing the one 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 call mm, uh, mm, and mm. the bureaucracy kind of gets in the way and i knew that the narrative was building and building and building but that one 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 call really dragged out the awkwardness to slow down the narrative to then jump into the um the rest of it uh so yeah i was really i thought i, I was really interested in the way humor and pace works mm. um but then in in terms of humour and horror, um, the biggest influence for this book, um, apart from Kira Muratova's films, is actually um, Stephen King's Misery. Oh, yeah. Um, have you read it? I have not read it. I am a Stephen King bird. Because <laughs> um, I... Um, so, Stephen King, have you seen the film, Misery? Yes, I've seen the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the book, because I hadn't really appreciated it to the extent that it is in mm, the book. Mm. But, um, so the premise obviously is, um, the writer is kept hostage by his biggest fan um but the book cuts between the horror of him being trapped in that room and um the the super fan kind of you know torturing him with the romance novel he's writing um to make sure he um gets out of that room Mm. and so stephen king uses that awful romance that he's writing as a way of slowing the narrative uh, making you kind of as a reader feel really kind of like oh god this book is awful but hurry up and because it, it, it's displacing the narrative and you're just like I just want to get through this but then you're also very aware that if he doesn't write this book well or write it to his super fan standards he's not getting out of that room so he does this really clever thing in the the narrative of misery where the humour and the horror butt up against each other and the um the humour really kind of makes the uh, the horror even more excruciating. Yeah. Um, and I was definitely trying to capture that sense with Slow Down You Here that in, in here I have the romance with that comedy um, and the horror of the home hmm. um, and that narrative displacement to kind of ramp up the tension of what's happening at home. Because the tension is unbelievable. Like, I mean, I, like I've felt it in other books of yours, but not... Um, what am I trying to say? Like the tension's different, you know what I mean? Like it's it's building tension towards one thing. But this, the way, oh my gosh, like I, I had to read it in one reading and people were coming into the room and I was going, fuck. I was just so overwhelmed by the tension in it. And it's just, it's just so incredible. Like, and, and like you say, like there is that weird thing where there was no way I could race over something to get, do you know what I mean? It wouldn't have relieved the tension any. <laughs> you know, like there was nowhere to hide with it, which is just so clever. Well, I also wanted to use the conventions of, of a romantic comedy, mm, romance, mm. Uh, as a way of building that tension because that whole yeah. will she, won't she, will she stay, will she go, um, all of those conventions, I think, were to employed in part to ramp up the mm. tension at home. Mm. Um, and I was very, very conscious that horror can be built by using other... Um, techniques so it doesn't have to be just horror all the way throughout you can jump between in order as long as the underlying premise and as long as the underlying tension is there you can kind of use these other techniques to really um accentuate that horror Mm -hmm. yeah i keep thinking about scream every time you say that like those scream movies like that way that the sort of metafictional side of it you know that um keeps you in that terrifying kind of house of leaves waves of sort of like uh, irony irony but also fuck you know yeah. like is the person in my house you know yeah yeah it's kind of yeah i mean i'm thinking of other books uh, another influence was wake and fright by kenneth cook oh um, i've heard of that but i've never read it oh it's so good um, okay mm-hmm. um, the movie's amazing too and i hadn't realized it was a book until 
um, I was talking about the movie and then someone on Twitter had said, um, who knew my stuff and reviewed me before, said, oh, have you read the book? Because I reckon that's totally down your alley. Awesome. Um, I thought, okay. And so I read the book and it was totally down my alley. But again, in that similar way where it's a guy who's trapped in a, in a small town in Australia, can't get out, and the humour is there, but there is absolute horror in his inability. And there's, have you seen the film? No, I've always been too scared. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a particular scene and it's horrendous in the film. It's pretty horrendous in the book. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, he again uses that comedy and horror to just really play off each other to ramp up that horror. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I, I Scream's a great example of that. Um, you can be, I, maybe also viewers drop their guard a mm, little bit. Mm, mm, um, mm, mm. You kind of go, oh, this is kind of fun, or oh, this is funny, and then bang, the uh, the horror remains. It was quite funny because I, wa- I hadn't seen them until this year, and then I watched the first one and I was like, oh my God, is this the perfect film? But yeah, <laughs> that's oh, my limited um, my limited filmness. Um, there's one scene that... Um, like, I don't think it's giving anything away, but we can talk about it vaguely. But there's a moment at a at an Airbnb where um, the um, two people come to um, take the Airbnb. And, like, it's one of those moments where I think that balance and the humour is so good because it's definitely progressing the story, but it's saying so much about the hideousness of racism in New Zealand. And... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty boring story. But I keep thinking about, you know, like, um, you know, briefcase as far as like GCSB, you know, like when that book came out, that that was horrifying what was going on. Yet, yeah, is humour useful for politics? It seems like a stupid question. Yeah, I I think so. Um, I mean, I unashamedly write political fiction yeah, um, yeah. I have no um, issues saying that uh, I think some people don't read don't want to read it that's fine they don't want to be lectured at in a book but I feel like humour in some respects tempers that kind of um, the the lecture aspect of political writing for me because um, mm. it allows uh, allows for that kind of dropping of the guard and allows for that sense of you not being lectured at you can get you can actually enjoy things to a certain extent um, but my underlying, th- I always write, I think, from a place of anger to a certain mm, extent. Mm. Um, and as long as I maintain that through that through the the book, uh, I can kind of put whatever in there as long uh, around it, um, as long as I don't undermine what I'm what I'm doing. So yeah, that, I, I definitely think humor plays a big role. I mean, Briefcase, Two Pies, and Peter's got cool comedy all the way throughout, and certainly the first third, two thirds are pretty. Um, kind of lots of jokes but I was kind of also kind of setting up that world for the the horror um and to be honest the the way the SAS uh absolutely fucked up the um Christchurch was a clear example of how Islamophobic that organization was structurally so mm. what I was exploring in the book was not funny in the slightest but um people kind of read it as a comedy which I I don't know maybe in some respects I kind of wonder a little bit based on that one in particular, how whether comedy can potentially undermine it too much that people don't realise it's being political. But I think it does allow for you to explore things in ways that aren't uh, black and white. Because mm. I think I think what's interesting about it often is I always think um, of um, 
Stuart Lee, you know, that idea where I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing, what the fuck am I laughing at? You know what yep. I mean? Like it's kind of like, ha, 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 those funny people, oh, I'm one of those terrible people, which I think is kind of... And, and often I feel like that with your work, that there's this great thing where I'm like, ho, 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 you know. And again, with, with this film, you know, like that idea of being smart enough to get the joke, but then also feeling, oh, yeah, I can't be complacent. You know, I can't be complacent about my intellect or something, yeah. Yeah, well, um, that's really apparent in her, um, in that film, Melody for a Street Organ, which mm. was her film in 2009, um, I think, which was all about two orphans wandering the streets of Kiev looking for their fathers. Um, they had, their mother has died, their mother had died, they just assumed that they had to go to Kiev to find their fathers, um, and they're wandering at Christmas in the middle of winter trying to find them, and they're getting ripped off by adults, uh, dogs are chasing them, orphans are awful to, awful to them. There's absolutely no sentimentality whatsoever mm. um, in, that, in that film, but again, she uses that humour as a way of really emphasising that point. So, like, she makes a joke about the massacre of the innocents, and it's just it, there's nothing that really should be funny, but she doesn't at all undermine her characters mm. um, or the anger in, in her in her films. Um, she's really kind of being cr- critical of kind of a capitalist um, indifference to to suffering, mm. um, but she also does it in a way that you don't you, you can you can get the power of it, but or maybe also the power becomes bigger because again that way of horror and similar to horror you can let your guard down and then mm. um, get those points. But yeah, she really kind of nails it um, by being both political and funny uh, mm. with that film. And, and her films kind of taught, gave me that kind of blueprint to um, to go that way um, mm. with my writing, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about anger as well. Like those, um, those scenes where she's pushing people violently and... Um, yeah, like walking down the street and kind of pushing people. And it was really interesting because I watched that and then there's a terrible video circulating of, of an attack that happened in China on some women that were in a cafe. And, like, it was very interesting watching the two together because, right, yeah. yeah, like just this idea of sort of public violence. But um, there is something amazing there as far as anger goes as well that um, – yeah, I don't know how she does it, but Natasha feel like you you feel Natasha's anger, but like you say, you're also thinking, you know, slow down, you're here. No, but you know that like you're also thinking, yeah. whoa, that's it's not going to get you. Yeah, yeah, misplaced. And there's the misplaced laughter as well. Like yep. there's lots of weird places, like those men that are laughing at the funeral. And, yeah, yeah. Or the the jokes that make you choke. Or there's like there's nothing. Oh yes. Oh my gosh. There's yeah. nothing really that like the laughter doesn't work as it should mm. nothing cathartic there's it's just tonally kind of doesn't fit the scenes that they're in um and therefore as a viewer you kind of go what's uh like wh- where are their uh, priorities what are they thinking about why are they letting all of this stuff slide um and that critique really kind of um becomes all the more powerful because of that yeah, because that's what I thought was incredible, like that scene in the mother and son's apartment and she plays, She ends up playing trumpet. But yeah, just that idea where it's like, I understand the rhythms of a joke, but this is not giving me any of the satisfaction of a joke. You know, and you know, she literally starts choking from laughing. And yeah, yeah it's incredible. Yeah, I, I, and I think um, there's those two layers like there's the characters the way the characters use laughter and the way she wants the, the audience to yeah. use laughter um, 
and yeah, I, I, it, I just think she's a genius. Oh, I, I, I no totally idea agree. Does it. I totally agree. Um, you talked a little bit about children and um, some of um, some of slow down. Your hair is narrated very much as a close. Is it a third or a first? Third. third, yeah, like a close third from a child's point of view. I was racking my brains trying to think if you have written from a younger person's point of view before. No. no and I just wonder time. about, like, first the decision to do that, especially in given the circumstances, and second, like, how, how did you do that? Like, because it's very well done. Um, I, because I, this, this idea came from a film script that I had mm. when I was, 2021 um but at the time I had no idea um how that relationship would have worked I didn't know anything about kids um (laughs) so I never I I didn't write a script I just had the the plot kind of Mm. mapped out um and then 10 years later a friend asked um talked about scripts and I said oh this is an idea that stuck with me and she thought it'd be a great idea uh her idea was that the trip would be to Germany she was Mm. she was German and they might be able to get some German funding and kind of do (laughs) do it that way um and then I became a parent and I had this real sense of um oh this is what kids are like um not that necessarily that's uh going to be reflective of of all kids but I really kind of I mean I love kind of rhythms of speech and uh the way people think and that's kind of stuff that I've always been fo- interested in, in my writing and um, I thought I could try out writing kids um, it did take a little bit of work I mean there were I think a little bit of editing early on which Murdoch came back saying I think we need to be a little bit tighter um, on the children here or and then um, Johanna who did the the editing uh, copy editing also kind of said oh, this one this scene could be pulled back even more so it, it, we, we did work pretty hard at kind of keeping it um, tight into that perspective um but I really wanted to make sure that um that voice got heard because I think it's such a crucial counterpoint um to the the other narrative Mm. which was um much more light and sunny and uh, and I just really wanted that contrast between the two and I think what I found really interesting about that choice is that again there's if you were writing a recipe for humor it would be you know um a, a sort of out of proportion understanding of the situation it would be you know some of the there's a little bit of um kind of slapstick slipping over falling over there's kind of poop in it you know like there's all that and it's interesting because like there's the, again it's that wonderful balance where it, it's kind of like it has ingredients of comedy and even some of the rhythms of comedy but yeah it's it's very and um, yeah, it, it's heavy, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, it's not uh, – you're right. I wanted to use some of those kind of tropes of humour in a way that's actually terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that kind of humour, horror thing was much more um, apparent. I mean, I, I was channeling people like Hitchcock and channeling people like um, – uh, people like that who – slightly sadistic aspect to it where you have this – we know what's horrible and you just really want to amplify it. And yeah. one way you can amplify it is by making it as recognisable and everyday and as funny and everyday in, in a general sense. Yeah. Uh, but obviously because we're terrifying because it is real and it feels like this could be you. That's yeah. that's really what I wanted to kind of capture with it. Yeah, it's just so well done. And like that's the other thing I was thinking um, is so well done is that writing from 
someone who hasn't lived as long, like not saying that they don't have huge, immense experiences, but it, I think what you did so well was it, it never seemed to break its own rules, if you know what I mean. And I guess that's where it must be really helpful to have readers that you trust. Yeah, yeah. They um, were really great in that sense of going, oh, this, maybe I don't think they'd think that, um, and pulling it back. Um, but also I wanted to kind of be far back enough so that the reader is aware a little bit more of what's around them. Yeah. So it's always kind of pulling in and out a little bit in terms of, I kind of view my narrator almost like a camera and so I kind of have a, initially a Dardenne Brothers kind of close up but then I pull back out a little bit so that a little bit of the wider world is seen. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I think, really important to make sure because I also don't want my, I don't mind sentimentality, I think sentimentality mm. is great but mm. I also wanted this book not to be sentimental mm. which it, because otherwise you kind of really, um, I kind of wanted to step back a little bit from manipulating because I know how manipulative the narrative could easily be, um, yeah. and I wanted that distance a little bit to to, um, to 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 avoid that. And I think having the um, that child focus, but in a way that was not humorous explicitly, but recognisable, um, yeah. was a key part of that. Yeah, because I was even. Um, this kind of um it occurs to me that um sorry this is, I'm about to go very deep but it occurs to me when you're talking about mothers like when you're writing about mothers there's um my friend and I um we're constantly trying to collect um books where mothers go away there are a lot of books where fathers go away but there are very few books where mothers go away unless they um are sick or die yeah. and I think that there's an incredible thing happening in Slow Down Your Hair where um, somehow you get through it without those those um, heavy kind of, um, what would you call them? They're, they're sort of like judgments that we bring to a book. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was really, really conscious in this book because there were a few things that I was exploring. There was, um, I wanted to write a domestic um, novel with Sri Lankan or South Asian characters because mm. I don't think there are many in New Zealand mm. that I can think of. I also wanted um, people to have take pleasure in sex um, and pleasure in relationships. But I was I was also conscious that the narrative was built to punish the um, Kavita whatever decision she made, and mm. I mm. didn't want to overdo that punishment. I wanted to create a sense of her um, herself, but also noting that as parents you have responsibility to for mm. wider things and but not even just as parents as human beings we have we're part of a web and we have to think about other people and but when we think about pleasure because the underlying aspect of this the underlying idea for this book is I was writing a horror about climate change mm. Um, mm. and I was thinking about what world am I bringing my kids up into mm-hmm. and if they have kids what um, world their kids would be living in um and then I kind of contrast it with, you know, my w- sense of wanting pleasure or wanting uh, some items or goods or, mm, or whatever mm, mm. and how much that's going to impact um, those kind of future generations. And that kind of sense of horror from knowing that whatever I do now is going to have that impact was kind of the main um, driver of that book. And so, yes, there's that sense of a mother going away, but also just wanted to kind of capture that sense of generational um, pull. So it wasn't necessarily meant to be entirely about a a mother decision because mm, mm. I just I mean that it, it's just so 
this book just keeps giving as all your books do but like thinking about it that way is just I so see that you know like yeah that yeah that kind of every decision we make is yeah oh my gosh and and yeah it, it really rewards that kind of thought I think yeah it's such a um can I ask you a question about the title like Mm. I really like the title and I have theories about what it means to me but I'm just wondering was it something that came early or late or is it um like you seem to be a genius at titles and yeah um mostly Murdoch um (laughs) so it's funny because Murdoch and I have very different approaches for titles and Murdoch often has his title first Mm. and then the book flows from that title so I think his hook comes um, from that title so if it's under the conditions of possibility the Helen Clark taking me as a young lover or Rat King Landlord you know these titles are so memorable that they kind of tell you the plot and they go from there I'm the opposite I have my question that I'm asking Mm. and that drives my book and then it's only afterwards that I actually then go I need to figure out a novel (laughs) sorry figure out a title and then Murdoch and I usually sit and get drunk and come up with titles and um I think Spriggs is the only one that I came up with out of all of my titles. Um, so uh, with Slow Down You Here, we, I think maybe someone had, I was just doing a Google map search. Uh, oh, sorry, well, I was walking the route of uh, Waiheke mm. that, um, mm. that they would have walked. And so mm. I wanted to do it. And I saw that sign, which says Slow Down You Here. And I was like, oh, how about this, Minok? And he was like, Actually, yeah, that could that could work because um, we like the imperativeness of it. That yeah. slow down. Um, you're here. I wasn't sure who the you was. I didn't know who you're saying to slow down. Mm. I'm not sh- sure why we're meant to be slowing down. Um, for what purpose? All of that sort of stuff. And I just love the ambiguity of that title because it doesn't. I don't know who it's referring to. Mm, mm. Uh, and it, because I've got those two narratives, it kind of really jars because it could be the one narrative or it could be the other, and you don't want it to be in either. And it's got, I think one of the things that I found was it added an extra level of tension because it's like, don't slow down, <laughs> you should not be here, you know, which is just, I don't know, there was something so great about it. And also, I don't know, it, for some reason it reminded me of that REM song, Stand. And <laughs> yeah, because I was just thinking, yeah, like the whole way through, you have to be here, 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 here. And, you know, like, again, I was, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's, I, I don't know, I just think it's blooming brilliant. I really, I really do think it's brilliant. Um, I wanted to ask a question because you have that background in film um, and we're sort of coming to the end but I do want to get this question in before we before I um, whoops before I leave um, what do you think there's a difference between humour and film and humour and books like is there something that will work in a film that won't work in a book or vice versa I think with film you have the ability to and TV you have the ability to have different types of humour much more apparent. You can have the visual jokes, you can ah, have the yeah. slapstick, yeah. you can have you can be like a wordy, witty humour such as all, you know, the screwball comedies or mm. succession or you can have like great scripts and great dialogue or you can have just great gags like a Jacques Tati or um, or, or, or a, um, even Mr Bean, I mean he Yep. <laughs> uh, um, or you know that's surreal like you just completely mess with um, people's expectations in your films uh, with films which is potentially harder with books mm. um, and also because books aren't consumed in the same way people don't tend to read books in that one block like you watch a film so that kind of 
the recurrence or the way humor can play with um, repetition and all that sort of stuff is less apparent in a book. Mm. Um, that's not to say books can't be funny. Of course they are. Um, and the thing I love is that, and even in, you look at like writing here, there are people who can write. There's such different types of humor that come out in the books. You've got the likes of Megan Dunn or uh, Rebecca Riley who can quip like in, in anything. Like you're reading sentences <laughs> and all of them just shifts on a dime. And you're like, where did that joke come from? Yeah. It's so good. Um, or Catherine Robertson, who's really just kind of writes these kind of really funny, warm, kind um, kind of portrayals of people. Mm. Um, or my stuff, which I think is a bit darker. Or Amon Mara kind of writes these kind mm-hmm. of dark stuff. Um, one thing, I, a, a book that I really appreciated when I was reading, uh, when I was writing this book was Chloe Lane's The Swimmers, mm-hmm. because um, she has really messy characters. Uh, and I really wanted to, wanted to capture that sense of messiness in my characters. Mm. And I love the, the kind of, stupid decisions um the characters made in the swimmers uh, i thought that was really just fantastic mm. um so yeah I, I i think books can be just as funny or there's different ways of doing it but i feel like film has the advantages of it, it plays with so many different forms in it mm. um that it's much more apparent what they're doing mm. um it's quite hard to do a visual gag in a book it's quite hard to do um but i suppose you could do a pun which you might not be able to do in uh, in a film and there is that I, I think as well there's that um I could be wrong gosh this is a question I'm going to take away from here but I was thinking that in in um television or film there's often this um like pulling you into the joke if you know what I mean like yep. there's the look or the gesture or the yep. you know whereas I think sometimes in books it like you say it's very hard to write a gesture you know like it's very hard to I, I'm thinking of um that guy in the office that always just looks at the camera and yep. you know like it's very hard to do that sort of thing I think um but like you say like every now and then there's just a really well-placed full stop or something and yep. you're like oh yeah I get it now well, I think even, I, and also sometimes I think literary rules can kind of get in the way. Like I think yeah. an adverb can be very funny. Yes. Um, yes. And they're very underrated as yes. in, in a humor sense. Um, <laughs> and so if you want to use an adverb, go for it because you can actually be funny with it. Um, and maybe that has that kind of aside or aspect that um, that you might get from, an, from someone looking at the camera or mm. making those kind of jokes. Um, oh, that's so true. I'm going to start using adverbs. <laughs> hey, um, I'm asking everyone this question, um, and you don't have to answer it because I can cut it out. Um, but I'm just asking, you've, you wrote a few years ago an extremely good article. There were three or four of you that wrote for the spinoff about how to, um, you know, keep writing, like how to sustain a writing career. And um, yeah, I just wonder if you've got any thoughts about that. Like you, you, you write novels like what did you say slow down did you say it was your I see yeah so I mean obviously something is working really well and I just wonder what you think that might be like what what why are you able to sustain this as well as having this other very full life like I don't think of you as someone who squirrels themselves away and doesn't live so yeah how 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 do you do it um I don't beat myself up if I don't write mm-hmm. um, so I give myself freedom to not do it I just spend a lot of time spend a lot of time thinking before I start writing I um, don't start writing until I'm really itching and having that urge to get a word down I don't start writing thinking oh I wonder where I'm gonna go it's I have my complete thing planned out I know exactly the direction I know the question I'm trying to answer mm. and yes I might leave individual scenes for um, uh, 
for the for the day but i i wait until that point and i think that kind of real itch helps me get work out mm. um i also and this is something i'm hadn't realized has helped me a lot but i spent my 20s kind of accumulating a lot of cultural capital where i read a lot i watched a lot of films i watched a lot of music watched a lot of tv um and i learned the kind of grammar um for narrative and um different techniques and i was a reviewer and i wrote mm. i think well over a million words for the lumia reader i just spent a lot of time practicing my writing writing about someone else's work rather than my own work mm. and i think that has helped a lot and i think maybe one of the things which is certainly not doable for most people and i certainly can't say that yeah therefore you need to um live this kind of unsustainable life in your 20s but I think just writing and writing bad and making mistakes. I spent my 20s making lots of mistakes, doing stupid stuff, writing stupid stuff, being unaware of power relations, but learning, having the space to learn. And then it was only when I started writing novels. I'd, I'd done a lot of those that work prior to prior to writing novels. And so um, even if you're writing for yourself, uh, just doing something, just kind of chipping away, getting better at the craft mm. helps a lot with once you want to write a novel. Mm. Um, yeah. Can I ask, carrying on from that, that is so extremely helpful. Carrying on from that stuff about reading, um, I'm just wondering when you're writing something, are you curating, I don't know if that's the right word, but are you only bringing into your sphere stuff that helps with that book? Like, are you only reading books that help with that book? or Not always. Um, so I tend to kind of view it, and I always, I, I don't think you could be a good writer unless you read a yeah. lot and read widely. And yeah. Uh, that's probably the only rule, writing rule I'll ever kind of say to people is that you need to read. Um, yeah. You won't get better unless you read. Yeah. Um, or you can write the one book, one good book and keep writing it, fine, but uh, that's not what interests me. I want to write different stuff. Mm. Um, so I spend, when I finish a book, I will have six months or so of just reading whatever I feel like reading. Nice. It's my kind of fallow ground kind of period. Um, and then I'll have a pretty clear, I'll have a clearer sense of what I'm wanting to write. And then that next six months will be pretty targeted yep. in terms of what I'm reading. So I have a sense that this is what my book's going to be about. So therefore, so with this book, I was writing horror. So I'm going to read Stephen King. I'm mm, going to read mm. uh, Uzimaki. I'm going to read uh, Kenneth Cook. Just, mm. all, that, all that sort of stuff. So I became really focused. And then when I was writing, I didn't read as much, but I kind of still, whenever I had any problems or kind of hit any roadblocks, then I would read mm. around those to kind of see, well, how else can I get around it? Um, and then when I was editing, I didn't tend to read much because I'm editing. Um, <laughs> uh, so I have kind of an 18-month kind of reading program. So if, say a book takes two years, that 18 months are spent reading from progressive, originally kind of really widely to more and more focused mm. as the book progresses. Mm. That sounds so cool. Because I think, I think that is the thing that, you know, I do sometimes I dangerously narrow myself like I'm like like at the moment I'm reading middle March for no reason and it's freaking me out because I'm yeah. like oh, you know I'm reading for pleasure oh. and actually yeah it, it actually sometimes I do need that um serendipity of stuff that I wouldn't have found if I'd only searched for what I wanted to search for yeah yeah I mean I certainly get so much well, also because sometimes you read something which is completely unrelated and you go well actually well this technique might work quite mm. well for this particular mm. scene mm. um so I totally rate that as a as a tool, just kind of reading stuff which is outside of what you're doing. Um, I mean, for horror, part of the reason why I write is because I also want to read in a particular area. So yeah. I wrote a horror novel because I wanted to read 
horror novels. Um, my next book is going to be about tradies and uh, set in the hut, but I want to watch a bunch of Italian neorealism films and I want to um, read kind of working class fiction. And um, So yeah, that, that part of that is also kind of a desire to read in that particular area too. So yes, you can kind of do that too as, as, as part of that process. Oh my gosh. I, it's interesting because the thing I've just finished, I spent a lot of time watching um, romantic comedies and you know I was looking at the I was looking at the rhythms of romance in that as well and um, although you wouldn't recognize it now but yeah I, I think it's really interesting and that, there was a reason because someone oh sorry I've said this so many times but a million years ago I did a course with David Van and he said that rom- romantic comedies are always about class and I think that it was really interesting watching sort of like yeah Made in Manhattan and you know seeing yep. this class explored and because I sort of think oh it always has to be you know you know hard literature but watching it explored like that was really interesting yeah I mean because I definitely use those kind of tropes in in this book Um, because one of the things that's a complete aside that I found fascinating about the reaction to this reception to this book is that it's been really focused on the racism that Kota and Ashwin face from kind of Pakeha people that they encounter but I was really in my head I was also really focusing on the divisions within mm-hmm. um, South Asian communities and caste and um, India versus Sri Lanka, um, professional versus people's proximity to Pakeha culture, uh, professional classes versus non-professional classes. Um, and that part also was that class tension, I guess, in, in that romantic comedy aspect of, mm. of, of the of the narrative. And um, yeah, I'm thinking like John Hughes has that... Um, as you say, made in Manhattan. Um, yeah, it's well, such even, a even like Pretty in Pink and all those things. Yeah, ex- definitely Pretty in Pink. Um, Pretty Woman. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, all these kind of cla- uh, Notting Hill, all these classic um, romantic comedy scripts have that disparity. And I was also thinking Elena Ferrante and how she completely dissects class using romance um, as well. And so yeah, I was uh, I, I was wanting to use romance because I, I feel like it's an underrated genre and the way that it explores pleasure and desire um, mm. and class while also um, offering this kind of escape. Mm. But I was also trying to subvert it with, mm. for the, to maximise that horror. Mm. And I think that is one of the um, one of the huge successes of the book is that um, yet again it breaks the um, like kind of monolithic representation of some peoples. You know what I mean? Like it, it break when we're not meeting. One, you know, we're meeting a variety of people who live, you know, who may have, um, you know, like culture associated with each other, but live very different lives, which I think is just, yeah, it's it's, it's stunning. Yeah, well, I'm kind of one of the one of the mantras, which has always kind of heavily influenced my writing, is Stuart Hall's idea of how to challenge stereotypes, and mm. he says you can't do it by if you've got a negative stereotype, you can't do it by just having a positive <laughs> depiction, because yeah. all you do is maintain that binary. Yeah. Um, and the only way you can break uh, stereotypes is to have as many uh, di- have as diverse a cast within that framework mm. um, as possible, because then you make the meaning slippery, and you can't say therefore that uh, a Sri Lankan person is this or or whatever kind of um, minority group you're trying to kind of talk about. You can't just say that they're just one person because you have so many different di- definitions. Mm. Um, and I want to, I don't know, maybe I'm also I was obsessed by um, Balzac's. Uh, approach uh, of having writing 
nearly 100 books um but like he has so many characters and so you can never say that his female characters this or his uh upper class characters this because they just there's so many characters and so much diversity in them to 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 challenge those ideas and so Mm. that's what i was trying to um try to do i mean i've only written seven but uh as opposed to 100 but yeah i just feel like it's just a success and like i just I mean, it was really fun thinking about talking to you, thinking about all the books, you know, like, I think that, I mean, yeah, like you say, like, it, it was, inter- you know, because there just is always this amazing new way of looking and new group of people and, yeah, different power dynamics and power explored in different ways. And, yeah, it's just, it's just so wonderful. You're amazing, Bram. <laughs> I'm so glad that you've got another book coming out. <laughs> I've got to stop. I, although I have started at the start again. Gosh, that um that French one. The, oh, oh you should have come here when you're not here. Oh my gosh! I think uh, yeah, I keep coming back to it. I think I read it every couple of years. It's just fantastic. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. I really thank appreciate you, it. Thanks, Eves.